0: If you can imagine, what we just sang was a a Christmas present to G.K. Chesterton from his wife, uh, Francis Chesterton. Not much heard of, but uh, the woman that he lived with in great peace and happiness um, all his life. Wouldn't that be a great gift to find? Well, it's good to be here with you again. I'm glad that I can be here, that Chorus Parvis can be here, that we can worship with you. I thank the session for inviting me to come back, inviting us to come back, really, and to be here in this beautiful place. Every time I come back, it seems like you've done something to make it nicer. You may recall that uh, the last time, uh, which was a year ago, uh, we we read about the, the Magi coming, Zoroastrian priests who came out of the Parthian Empire to the east, brought gifts to the baby... Jesus, well, about two-year-old Jesus at that point, and then they were warned to uh, get out of Herod's way, and so they left, went back by another route to their own country. And that's where the story picks up, and I'm going to read the passage, Matthew 2, beginning at verse 13. Now when they, that is the Magi, had departed... Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt Well, the Magi's dream must certainly have taken place the same night that they met Jesus. Remember, they went out from Herod's presence, they saw the star, and it led them to the place where Jesus was. They fell down, worshipped, gave him their gifts. But it's only about six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, a distance that messengers or an assassin or a group of soldiers could cover easily in an hour. And Herod had a fortress. One of he, he built about a dozen fortresses around the land after he became king, and one of them, Herodium, was only was even closer than Jerusalem. And these fortresses all had an interlocking communication system. Now, no, it was not wireless. It was you know semaphores or something. We don't really know what it was. We're just told by various historians that they could all communicate very rapidly with each other. So Herod is sitting in Jerusalem waiting for the report from the Magi that is where this child is so that he could send some assassins and kill him. But the, but the Magi got away. And we know that if Herod was watching for them, they must have gone south. They would have gone to the kingdom of Nabatea and then around the bottom of the, south sea, of the Dead Sea. And if they went that way, they only had to get past one fortress, whereas if they'd gone north or east, they would have had to get past a whole string of them that were very close together. So they got away from Herod headed for the Euphrates River. That was the border between Parthia and Rome. Once across the river, they're completely safe. Herod has no chance at getting at them. But that also suggests that Joseph's dream must have occurred the same night because Herod was not a patient man, and he is waiting to hear where this child is so that he can get him killed. So early the next morning, and we have to remember when you live in a land without electricity, uh, you tend to go to bed when the sun goes down and you get up early. So early the next morning, they get up, pack up whatever they can carry, certainly the Magi's gift. They got some gold, some frankincense, some myrrh. And remember, this doesn't sound like much to us because our usual portrayals are little bottles of perfume, you know, like the kind you could stick in your pocket. But, but also remember that one jar of ointment that Mary washes Jesus' feet with was worth one year's wages, one year's income. So they have this, these gifts, valuable gifts, with which they could have bought donkeys or you know, food or whatever for their supplies. But basically, they've got to get out of Bethlehem and they've got to get out fast because Herod is not going to wait very long. And so they've got to go about 40 miles south. And if they go 40 miles south, they get into the kingdom of Nabatea, they cross the border. And Caesar Augustus, who did lots of things, uh, one of the things he did was tell Herod to leave the other little kingdoms alone because they were all part of the Roman Empire, but they were each kind of client kings. They were allowed to call themselves king and allowed to rule, but the Senate had to ratify their appointment, and the Senate could remove them from being king anytime it wanted. And Herod had already gotten into trouble with Augustus by invading another kingdom, chasing some um, insurrectionists. And so he'd been told, leave them alone. You know, so, so once they got across the Nabataean border, they're safe. They could breathe for a bit. They've only got about 200 miles or so to go to Egypt, so maybe three or four weeks. Figuring you can't travel too fast, even if they had donkeys, donkeys are known for strength, not for speed. So, it's going to take them a while to get there. But, it's not like, it's not as though we were being told to go to Irian Jaya, off into the mountains somewhere. Uh, because Egypt was a well-known place. It had been a political refuge for Israelites for hundreds of years. You read back through the Old Testament, several times people who got in trouble with the king would flee to Egypt, hang out for a while, and then come back. And there were were well-known caravan routes. In fact, there's one uh, ancient uh, geographer, Strabo, who says that the caravans moved on them so constantly it was like watching a single army just walk up and down the road. So Mary and Joseph could have hooked up with a caravan and in a few weeks they would have been completely safe in the land of Egypt. And Egypt was not even quite as foreign as, well, maybe more like going to Canada for us because the largest single concentration of Jews in the first century lived in the city of Alexandria. There were hundreds of thousands of Jews living in Egypt. Many of them were descendants of the Jews who had fled after the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar 600 years earlier. Uh, They had taken Jeremiah with them. uh, But many of them also just migrated there after the the Persians had conquered the, uh, the whole known world. And so they're going to a place where they would have been welcomed. They certainly would have had people they knew or at least knew of, sort of like playing where we live up in Hatfield. People talk about playing the Mennonite game. You go to a Mennonite church and you say, oh, who are you related to? And then pretty soon you find out that everybody's related to everybody else. And so they get to Egypt. They would have had, if not, if not personal friends, at least people who would have welcomed them. So they get to Egypt. Jesus is safe. Meanwhile, back in Bethlehem, however, things are not so good. Um, Herod was enraged at being deceived by the Magi, and at this point in his life, uh, Herod is suffering from arteriosclerosis. At least that's the modern diagnosis of what Josephus and others have described. And he was, he was pretty close to being insane, and certainly he was insane about his right to rule, hanging onto his throne. And Herod, then, when he figures out that the Magi have tricked him, Uh, kind of goes ballistic and says, well, we can't find him, we'll just kill them all. They said the star appeared two years ago, he's two years old, okay, just kill everybody two years old and under. Just think of that, think of that. Now, Bethlehem's not a city, despite all the medieval paintings that show ramparts and castles and things like that. It's It's a tiny town, probably less than a thousand people. So we're not talking about thousands of deaths, but even the death of one would be too many. But Herod says, I'm taking no chances, get rid of them, get rid of them all. So, you know, this was, this was not unusual. The, the year Pompey, uh, sorry, Augustus was born, well, he wasn't Augustus at the time, but when Augustus was born, shortly before his birth, in 63 BC, there was a, an, an omen that was interpreted by the Roman um, dream interpreters, omen interpreters, priests, I guess is the way to say it, uh, as, as a signal that the Republic was going to be replaced by a kingship and an empire. The Senate did not want Rome to become a kingdom. They wanted to be, remain a Republic and so they ordered that all children, all children born that year be killed. We find the same thing in Nero's day. A comet appeared in the sky and Nero said, this is a symbol, sign that somebody's going to try to assassinate me. And so he just took a whole slew of the upper crust of Roman society and killed them all and exiled their children, either had them starved or poisoned. So, you know, killing a few dozen kids in a little backwater town in Judea, way over there on the rump of the empire, who cares? A child's life in those days literally, by Roman law, belonged to his father and to the government. And the father could decide to expose the child or the government could say expose the child. That was the law. So what's done here is legal, legal, highly immoral, but legal. So we read this story and there's this, this conundrum, right? We're happy. Jesus is safe. The world's saved, right? (laughs) But these kids are killed. These children die. Why didn't God protect the children the way he protected Jesus? Send an angel, tell their mothers, get out of Bethlehem, go hide in the hills until it's over. Is this just the collateral damage that Eric mentioned in his Welcome to Us? Living in a sinful world? Is that what it is? Is this the testing of parents' faith like Job when his children were killed? We're not told, and really, I don't have time to address. We could talk for days and weeks about this question, and so that's why Eric is here. <laughs> but I, but I, uh, but I just, I just want to, I want to read one little, one little story from Luke's Gospel. This is from chapter thirteen of Luke. Some were there at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled, had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus replied, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than anyone else living in Galilee because they suffered these things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish in the same way. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, do you think they were worse sinners than anyone else living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all likewise perish. So should we be angry, angry, and sad at this massacre? Yes we should. And if we're not, then there's something wrong with our moral compass. But notice that Jesus doesn't address what we call the problem of evil. He says, this is an occasion for you to take account of your own heart. And ask yourself, am I penitent? Do, have I repented? Am I on good terms with God? Is the question worth asking? Why do bad things happen to good people? Of course it is. Is it worth dwelling on? Probably. But should it cause us to step away from our faith? No. Should it cause us to stop believing that God is good, or in control, or that he's merciful? No. But it should remind us that we need to repent and beg for mercy, lest we too perish, which is what Jesus warned against. Joseph and Mary and Jesus are in Egypt They couldn't have been there more than a couple of months... ...because Herod died very soon after these events. This is all very compressed in time. They haven't even had time to settle down. And Joseph had another dream, another angel. Says, Herod's dead, go back. So, they go back to their own land. Now, to get there, they have to go through Nabatea again. It's another, you know, 250-mile trip to, uh, to get back to Bethlehem. But Herod died, and his son... He split his kingdom among three sons... And Archelaus became the ruler of what's called Judea and and Samaria. He got kind of the the, the heartland of Herod's kingdom. Um, But the problem was, um, Archelaus was kind of like his dad, in that um, when a number of Jews protested um, something that Herod the Great, his father, had done, um, Archelaus sent soldiers and said, look guys, go away, basically, cease and desist. And the Jewish protesters got angry through stones and a couple of soldiers were killed so he summoned his whole army, sent them to Jerusalem and killed over 3,000 Jews and Samaritans. Then when the Jews um, appointed a delegation to go to Rome to complain to Caesar Augustus and say, see, this man should not be king. He's not worthy of being king. He had the whole delegation and all their families killed. So we can understand Joseph is nervous about going back to Judah. I mean... Would you want to live under that person? Perhaps they're going right back to their house in Bethlehem. I mean, they lived in a house. They'd settled down. They were no longer poor. They had the Magi's gifts. They maybe weren't well to do, but they were doing more than merely surviving. But as they get there, and they find out about that Archelaus is, received that portion of the, of the, uh, of the nation, um, an angel appears to Joseph again and says, don't go back to Judea. Go someplace else. And so they end up in Galilee in a little town called Nazareth, which is their hometown. So what we read about in Matthew 2 is actually a two-year round trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem to Egypt and back to Nazareth. They end up back in their own land. And this ends the part of the story. That's it. Matthew's not going to tell us anything about Jesus for 28 more years of his life until he's about 30 years old as Luke says at the end of chapter 3 when Jesus began his public ministry. It's a familiar story, we all know it, and perhaps you've seen many of those paintings of the slaughter of the innocents, that's a very popular painting topic in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. But, once we've read it, now the question is, what are we supposed to think about? when we read this story, right? Isn't that the purpose of reading biblical stories? I mean, one thing that they do or ought to do is reshape the way we see reality. We read enough of these stories and we begin to say, oh, I kind of see what's going on. I kind of see what God is doing. I kind of see how he relates to his people, how he relates to the creation, how these things happen. Or maybe even more importantly than thinking that we see something is, our hearts begin to be reformed and reshaped, remolded by what we read in Scripture. So I want to just ask a couple of questions about this story, and then maybe later we can have a long conversation about them. First, when we look at these characters, read the Gospel of Luke, that's the part that's familiar, you know, there were shepherds abiding in the field by night, watching, in the field watching over their flocks by night, when lo, an angel of the Lord came upon, we read those stories, we know that, that's kind of the crush in the manger scene and, and Mary is sort of the main figure but here, she's just there, I mean she gives birth, but she's just, Joseph is the main character, and when we read this, we realize that what Joseph is like, is a man who obeys, he does what he's told every time I mean, think, think about this. It, well, let me, let, me back up, let me back up a stack. So I got an email a couple of weeks ago from a student, great student, senior, going to graduate from the Honors College, which, by the way, you're free to come visit you know, right across the river at Eastern University anytime. Just come on over. Um, and, and she said, OK, I have job offers from four schools. Which one should I take? And I wrote, it took me about two hours to write a reply explaining why I couldn't tell her which one to take. Um, but that's what we want, isn't it? We want a voice from God saying, go to this college, marry this person, take this job, live in this house, go to this church. Do th-. We want a list. We want a little voice. We want an angel to come around in a dream, although we'd probably be kind of suspicious if somebody told us that was, that's what had happened. But, but that's what we want. We want a message. But think what Joseph was told to do. Lest we think this an easy thing. So in his first, his sec, his first dream, his fiancée, Mary, comes back pregnant from a three-month visit with far-off relatives. So God says, marry her anyway. Knowing, he knows, it's not his child. And he's going to live with the stigma of having a promiscuous wife, raising some other man's son... And he did it. And then just as they're settling into life in Bethlehem, they've been there for a couple of years, they've managed to afford a house. He has, he's, a, he's actually a craftsman. The word carpenter is a little misleading. Um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a skilled craftsman. He's told, go to this other country. Flee. Leave everything. Leave everything except what you can carry and go. The king's going to kill your son. And by the way, they knew... ...that if the king caught them, he's not just going to kill Jesus, he'll kill them too. That was Herod's way. So Joseph says, okay. Gets up, gets wakes Mary up, they go and save Jesus' life. And then even before they could begin to settle down in Egypt... ...they've only been there a month or so, a couple of months at most... ...another angel says, go back... And now I say this with due respect, but Joseph must have wondered, you know, am I a ping-pong ball? Well, they didn't have ping-pong then, but if they had, what am I? You know, bouncing back, and where am I supposed to, what is going on? But, the important thing is that he obeyed. Gathered his family, returned to the land, their own land, and then when told not to go where he thought he was going to go, back to Bethlehem, to Judea, Goes off into the hinterlands, into Galilee, which was pretty much a backwater, considered a backwater by the Jews, the cosmopolitan Jews of Jerusalem. And that is where he raised Jesus. And so the prophecy becomes, is fulfilled that he'll be called a Nazarene. And then Joseph disappears. The only other times in Matthew that he's mentioned are when Jesus is called the son of Joseph. That's it. But if he hadn't obeyed God at least two prophecies wouldn't have been fulfilled and there would have been no gospel because Jesus would have died as a two-year-old in Bethlehem. More than once I heard Alan McRae with a founding president of the Biblical Seminary say this. The first step in knowing the will of God is deciding to do it no matter what it is. The first step in knowing the will of God is deciding to do it, no matter what it is. And I submit that that's what Joseph had done. He determined to obey God, no matter what God required of him. 2,000 years of church history, 2,000 years of theological reflection, the whole of scripture, these are the things that we have to guide us. And what do they tell us? What do they tell us? What's most important? Two sentences. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Augustine told us that if our loves are well-ordered, that is, if we love God, then he said, do what you will, because he meant that if our loves are in the right order, we have them in the right proportions, then what we will to do, what we want to do, will necessarily be aligned with that love. A second thought, Matthew begins his account of the gospel with two genealogies, one very short, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and one rather long, 42 generations, which I'm not going to recite, even though it's a lot of fun to read all those names. He also mentions five dreams, and three, three of which are connected with angels, and four of which are connected to Old Testament prophecies. None of those things are mentioned in the other Gospels. Why not? Well, we know from other writings of what's called the Second Temple Period that, um, that in Judaism, dreams and angels were very important. And so Matthew seems to be writing his Gospel with a Jewish audience in mind, They're, and therefore he appeals to all these fulfillments of Scripture. Look, the Bible says this, and here it is happening. Here it is. This is proof that what I'm telling you is true, what I'm saying about this person, Jesus. So Matthew writes his account of the gospel for Jews. In other words, he tailored his presentation of Jesus Christ to his audience by putting it in a form that they would find culturally acceptable and religiously attractive. Even his description of Herod and Herod's persecution of Jesus would have made Jesus a sympathetic character in the eyes of the Jews because by the time he wrote his gospel, there would still be grandparents around who had lived under Herod and seen the kind of king he was. So they say, wow, if Herod was after him too, what kind of person was he? And Matthew wrote like this because he knew his people and he loved his people. He wanted them to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He wanted them to trust him to save them from their sins. He wanted them to enjoy the grace and the forgiveness and the fullness of life that all those who trust in Christ find. And so he wrote to make his message appealing to his audience. And and that raises in my mind a question about how we present things that we think are true. How do we talk about the gospel? You know, it's not uncommon to hear, um, okay, everybody, this week, I want you to get out there and witness to somebody. That's a, I've heard that before. Um, as though this was merely a matter of asking the right questions, and we'll give you a piece of paper that lists the questions you should ask, or here are some Bible verses you should use, or here are the three steps, or whatever it might be. And it's interesting that, the, that when Matthew writes his gospel, he doesn't follow the pattern of John's gospel. And Mark starts out with John the Baptist. That's the third chapter of Matthew. He's got lots of verses coming before then. He writes for the people that he's talking to, which means that requires that he understands them. And that understanding only comes when we love someone. It's not an intellectualist understanding. It's the understanding that comes out of the heart that perceives the heart of the other person. So, loving God, loving his Christ, and loving those with whom he shared this story, he wrote his gospel. There's a third thing that this passage raises that um, I'm not going to spend any time on, and again, I refer you to Eric um, who's far more uh, adept at this than I. But there are three prophecies in the verses that I read, and it says they were all fulfilled. What's really interesting about them is the first two um, are kind of contrary to the, to the rest of their context. That is, Matthew picks a single line or a couple of lines out. So when he says, I called my son out of Egypt, that's a reference to Hosea chapter 11, verse one, it's a quotation. Um, That's how the passage begins and then it goes on to say, but my son doesn't obey me and doesn't love me. So, is Matthew setting up in the minds of his Jewish audience, who would have known the story of the Exodus and all the Jewish complaints and rebellions and all their testings of God in the wilderness, is he setting up for them this question, is this Israel, this Jesus, this new Israel, is he going to be like the old Israel and fail Or is he going to be a new Israel and actually accomplish the purposes of God? And so Matthew presents the story of the temptation in the wilderness where Israel failed again and again and Jesus succeeds. Jesus wins. Jesus comes through. Jesus loves God enough to obey him rather than his own passions and desires. When we read The passage about the death of the children a voice heard in ramah weeping in great mourning rachel mourning her children refusing to be comforted because they're not those come from jeremiah 31 a chapter we love because that's about the new covenant right that's the part we know from jeremiah 31 well this is 15 years 15 verses earlier and what comes next is actually god says this is what's going on rachel is mourning Right, that's a, a Rachel, one of Jacob's wives, this is kind of a code word for the city of Jerusalem. Rachel is mourning, and then God says, this is what he says next, thus says the Lord, this is the next verses, thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, says the Lord, and they, your children, will return from the enemy's land. Your future has a hope, says the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. And then he says, is, is Ephraim my dear son? I'm skipping some lines. I will surely have mercy on him. What sounds like bad news, when we read it in Jeremiah, is actually not bad news. Because weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning, as the psalmist says. The Lord promised to redeem his people from their sins, which is why the angel told Joseph to name him Jesus. The Bethlehemite parents, who had lost their children, would yet know the mercy and grace of God, because blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I don't pretend to understand or know how this happens. And I also don't know, I'm pretty sure, that we can't expect it to happen the same way for everybody. But because Jesus was not killed by Herod as a baby, but rather offered himself as a willing sacrifice for sins, God will wipe away every tear from every eye and sorrow and sighing will be no more. They will flee away. And that is God's promise to everyone who trusts in Christ. Finally, I'm going to return and kind of reprise a bit from last year's. And I do this because it's something that, frankly, I need to hear over and over. We need to hear over and over. As was said in our congregational prayer this morning, um, we live in a world that seems to be falling apart. And it's very easy for us to be hardened by the lies of the world and the devil and even of our own flesh, which is why. Hebrews says, the author of Hebrews says, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness, the lies of sin. Well, in this story, God uses angels and dreams. Now notice, those are messengers that can't be intercepted, they can't be bribed, they can't be assassinated. He uses angels and dreams to get the Magi home by another route, to send Joseph, Mary, and Jesus to Egypt, and to bring them back to Nazareth. God's plans, you see, they are never, 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 never thwarted. They're not. He alone knows the end from the beginning. He alone delights to do and brings about, he will do, all his holy will. No one, nothing stands against him. And the plan and design of God, which he is even now bringing to pass, is the redemption and renewal of all things in his Son, Jesus Christ. So that that a day is coming when every knee, every single knee, will bow. And every single tongue in heaven and on earth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this will come to pass because it is the word of God is a promise. Now we know this. We confess it. And I fear sometimes it misleads us. Because we're so convinced that we're on God's side. That we convince ourselves that it's really God who's on our side. And so we sometimes hear messages like this or read passages in scripture and think, oh, this is for them. Because we already know what's right. We already, we've got it. We know that we're part of them because we know all the code words. Right? Everybody here, I'm sure, the only flower you have in your garden is a tulip. Am I right? We know that if somebody asks how you are, the only proper response is better than I deserve. We know that. That's a password, right? There's a TED talk by Catherine Schultz called On Being Wrong. She says this, we get it in the abstract. We all know everybody makes mistakes. The human species in general is fallible. Okay, fine, she says. But when it comes down to me right now, to all the beliefs I hold here in the present tense, suddenly all of this abstract appreciation of fallibility goes out the window. I can't actually think of anything I'm wrong about. And the thing is the present tense is where we live. We go to meetings in the present tense, we go on family vacations in the present tense, we go to polls and vote in the present tense. So effectively we all kind of wind up traveling through life trapped in this little bubble of feeling very right about everything. And when we combine this natural human feeling with our theology, we easily become self-satisfied and, frankly, even smug, knowing that we have the real truth and glad that God agrees with us on everything. But God himself warns Israel this. He says this, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, here you go. Here you go. Set up a committee, save the world committee. Would you choose to get a woman pregnant before she's married? Would you choose to have a baby born in a barn? Would you choose to have the savior of the world pursued by a mad king flee to a foreign land end up in a backwater raised with the stigma of being illegitimate? My guess is not one of our five year plans would look like that. That's why when I get When I get emails like the one from this student, they terrify me. Because what if my plans, what if my advice, in all innocence, is just wrong? What if, with the best of intentions, I'm actually working against the work of God in someone else's life? Whether it's my students or my family, my friends, whatever. What assurance do I have, in fact, that anything I say or do is good and right in the sight of God? Joseph Pieper says that prudence is the art of making the right decision based on the way things really are. And then he says this how do we do that? He says, this is a communal endeavor. I need you, we need each other to help us see clearly. Because frankly, folks, we're each so blinded by our own interests that we can hardly see what's out there. And so, we need, you and I need, to ask God, and our friends to help us see ourselves in light of scripture, in light of the gospel, and we need to do it again and again and again and again. The warning that resistance is futile applies to everybody, not just to them. It's for everybody. Judgment is coming, Peter says, and it begins with the household of God. And so we, who know these things and who confess them gladly, ought to seek justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. And when that happens, this is what God himself says. Then our light will burst forth like the dawn. Our recovery will spring forth with haste. Our righteousness will go before us. The glory of the Lord will be our rear guard. We will call out and God himself will answer. We will cry and he will say to us, Here I am. And Jesus, Emmanuel, is God with us. Amen. Let us pray. O God, who by the leading of a star did manifest your only begotten Son to the Gentiles, mercifully grant that we who know you now by faith may after this life have the fruition of your glorious Godhead through the same your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.